Good morning and welcome to our program, Our American Heritage. I am Mark Chandler, the host of the program, and it is our desire at American Heritage to explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. Understanding the history of our great nation is paramount in understanding our greatness. Today, we're going to welcome back as our special guest, Dave Stahl. Dave, thank you for coming back to the program today. I'm glad to be here. Listeners, in our last program, Dave was talking about the Gulf of Tonkin resolution and the Gulf of Tonkin incident and Lyndon Johnson and Robert McNamara. So Dave has a duel from the Air Force and the Navy in his past. He's beginning his 36th year of teaching this year. He is a licensed umpire, baseball umpire. He loves baseball, and he also loves golf. He is a true American patriot. He's a great American, and he's a very good friend of mine, and he's got a very deep voice, so I don't like him. So (laughs) we tenors would be at that table. So, Dave, thank you for coming and continuing to share. And if you want to, please pick it right back up. You ended the program, and when we were off air, I asked Dave to come back and talk about Daniel Ellsberg and another show and the Pentagon Papers and the Plumbers. So if you would pick it back up with, you were talking about the Gulf of Tonkin incident and then Lyndon Johnson getting the Gulf of Tonkin resolution from Congress. Yeah, thank you, Arch. So to pick up where we left off, Johnson goes before Congress, asks for basically permission, and not that he thought that he needed it, but he was in election year to conduct offensive operations against the North Vietnamese. So shortly before midnight on the night of August 4th, 1964, and I remember this very well, Johnson interrupted national TV to make an announcement in which he described an attack by these North Vietnamese vessels on two U.S. Navy warships, the USS Maddox and the USS Turner Joy, and requested authority to undertake a military response. The gist of Johnson's speech was that he repeated the mantra that Ho Chi Minh and Hanoi were the aggressors. They had put the United States into a more acceptable defensive posture. Johnson referred to the attacks as having taken place, quote, on the high seas, unquote, and suggested that they had occurred in international waters. He knew full well, absolutely knew, without a doubt, that that was a bold-faced lie. The Turner and Maddox both were inside the North Vietnamese recognized waters. The attack on the night of the 2nd did take place. The attack on the night of the 4th did not take place. And just so that we're not confusing anyone, it's the night of the 4th is on the other side of the international dateline. So actually you're coming back and <laughs> it seems if you follow the chronology, it can be con- con- confusing somewhat uh, because Johnson is actually asking for a declaration before the event <laughs> took place, uh, if, if you look at it from that aspect. In hey, this, Johnson... I, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm going to have two questions for you. One, the second one is a, as a follow-up. One, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, constitutional or unconstitutional? Well, if you believe in the strict adherence of the Constitution, Congress did not declare war. Mm-hmm. They authorized Johnson to do whatever he felt was necessary as the commander-in-chief. What a lot of my students don't even realize is that the last, quote, constitutional provisioned declaration of war was when FDR went before Congress on December the 8th, 1941, after Pearl Harbor. 
And I mean, we've had how many wars and international conflicts right. uh, since then uh, that, you know, presidents have just used it. And that's going to lead to another act that I want to wrap our discussion up with here today. And uh, that's going to be called the War Powers Act, which I was going to say would probably be a good topic to do on a future broadcast. Absolutely. Uh, In your opinion, why would Congress give Lyndon Johnson such tremendous power to respond militarily without even, you know, clear approval from them and what he was doing? I think that it was a carryover from the Kennedy years. You know, Kennedy had gone toe to toe with Khrushchev. In essence, the Soviets blinked over Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that that set a standard that no no self-serving representative or senator that wanted to continue their career would take on and buck that. Okay. I, I really, you know, and part of that is hindsight. Uh, I have to be honest, sure. part of that response is hindsight. But I just don't think anybody really was looking to get crossways with Johnson. And the 64 election shows that. Dave, how much was Robert McNamara influencing Lyndon Johnson here? Oh, absolutely, to the nth degree. Okay. Um, McNamara, you know, he had been, the, he, he was a pencil pusher. He was a manager. He, he, you know, he'd been the president of Ford Motor Company. Mm-hmm. And he brought that mentality with him to government. Everything had to be micromanaged. And that micromanagement, he convinced Johnson that that had to be the way to go. Um, you know, John, McNamara knew that Johnson would not breach any resistance to what he stated he wanted to have happen. For example, within 30 minutes of the August 4th incident, and this is before he even goes to Congress, Johnson had decided on retaliatory attacks, Mm. and this became known as Operation Pierce Arrow. Um, The word went forth to Admiral Sharp in Honolulu and to the 7th Fleet, get ready, boys, you know, we're... We're going to take care of this. He got on the phone to the Kremlin. He assured the Soviets that he had no intent of opening a broader war in Vietnam. Early the next morning, he publicly ordered these measures stating, quote, the determination of all Americans to carry out our full commitment to the people and to the government of South Vietnam will be redoubled by this outrage, unquote. One hour and 40 minutes after his speech, A4s, F8s, and F4 phantoms were launched uh, off the Constellation and the Ticonderoga, uh, the two carriers that were out on what was called Yankee Station in in the Gulf. And they went in and they bombed four torpedo boat bases and an oil storage facility in the North Vietnamese city of Vinh. That opens it up. And within a very short period of time, the North Vietnamese, they, they were not unarmed at this point. I mean, they had incredibly good what's called AAA, anti-aircraft artillery, and they're going to start shooting down American jets. And the first American to be shot down was a young Lieutenant JG by the name of Everett Alvarez. And Alvarez would survive close to eight years as a, quote, guest of the North Vietnamese in the Hanoi Hilton and would be tortured, you know, almost beyond belief. Mm -hmm. So that's what gets it started. And then the squadron leader that led this search for these North Vietnamese torpedo boats on the night of the 4th was a commander by the name of James Stockdale. Hmm. And James Stockdale, in 1985, will write a book called In Love and War. And I would Mm -hmm. recommend that book to all of your listeners. If you don't know anything at all about the Vietnam War, that is one of your bucket list books that you need to do. But 
he will be shot down as well. And he was so afraid that knowing what he knew, that this had never happened, that the North Vietnamese would torture him into confessing. There was an incident where he was going to be brought before the international press in Hanoi later on in the war. Mm-hmm. And James Stockdale, uh, they gave him a razor, you know, the old style razor with the blades and whatnot, and the shaving cream. And to make sure that he would not be giving out any information that he didn't think they needed to know, he took the blade out of that razor and he cut his face and his forehead up so bad that they weren't able to put him mm-hmm. before, the, before the people. And for that, he was severely tortured. You know, it, it's unbelievable what uh, what they did to him. He would be, later be awarded the Medal of Honor for his mm-hmm. uh, activities as a prisoner. But, you know, James Stockdale and his wife, oh my gosh, without her, I, I really don't think we would have gotten any POWs back if it yeah. hadn't been for the wives. Hey, it's an incredible uh, man. It was an incredible man. Yes. yes. So well, take, take, uh, take that opened the can of worms and we're off and, off and running. And uh, in the following summer, 1965, President Johnson will order the influx of, I think it was 350,000 ground troops, which included the Marines and the what became the 1st Air Cav Division. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're, we're going to go toe-to-toe with the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong for the next seven years, all based on a lie. All based on and All based on a lie. Dave, Lyndon Johnson knew it was based on a lie. Yes, he did. And why... You have been in the military, you know, and I'm absolutely convinced that our military in Vietnam was still the greatest military in the world, even for its day. Why would Lyndon Johnson restrict our military in Vietnam the way he did? That's always been the $64 question. <laughs> well, and it's, 100, mean, it's I, I, 128 now as inflation set it. Inflation, <laughs> okay. Um, Johnson had a real insecurity mindset. He had to be right. He, he could not stand to be wrong on anything. He was so afraid of what China and the Soviet Union mm-hmm. were capable of doing and that he didn't want to risk any type of confrontation that would bring one or both of those into the war, even though both nations were supplying technicians, pilots, even some ground commanders. That you know, that, there, there were things that you, even as late as when, you know, when we came in in 71, when I came in in 71, you know, there were things that they just said, you know, you don't have a need to know. Don't talk about that. It's kind of like when we left the submarine service. I, I had to sign a, a, a paper that, you know, okay, you won't talk about this, these kinds of things for a period of 20 years. Okay, great. The cruelty and the cost in American lives mm-hmm. based on his micromanaging It's unprecedented. I I mean, you look in our nation's history, there has never been an administration that put the handcuffs on American troops the way that the Vietnam administrations did. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was going on well up into, you know, the 70s and and early 80s. Honestly, Arch, it's not until Ronald Reagan comes into office in January of 81, I remember very well that they took those restraints off of us. Mm-hmm. I remember standing topside watch on a missile submarine in a port city in Southeast Asia uh, that was subject to sabotage and saboteur attacks. And I was not allowed to have bullets in my weapon. Yeah. Uh. 
even at that point in time. Uh, you know, I could have bullets in the clip. Right. I could stand atop my watch. And I often thought, you know, okay, so, you know, a North Korean saboteur crawls up the, the missile deck of my submarine at one o'clock in the morning. And I, we would just half kidding. I say, okay, we'll just tell them to just stop right there. Let us get our bullets put in our weapons and then we'll see what they want to discuss. Um, I mean, it, it was, you know, and it's still that way to a certain extent, uh, which drives me crazy. But Johnson also had to remember, and, and here's the real dichotomy of, of Johnson's administration. He wanted the great society. We were spending billions of dollars on programs for the great society, Medicare, welfare, uh, you know, all these different unemployment insurance, all these different things that were being expanded, you know, to bring people into their civil rights and whatnot. At the same time, we were spending the equivalent of about $1 billion a day, a day in Vietnam in a war that Johnson by March of 1968 looks at it and says, we're not going to be able to win this. So I'm going to bail out. I remember talking to guys who felt so incredibly betrayed that their commander in chief decides to just pull the plug on that famous speech that he gave uh, on March 31st of 68. Mm -hmm. And everybody else looks at it and goes, well, hell, if he's going home, I want to go home too. Mm -hmm. And yet it continued for another four and a half years. You said, I, I think that's a big part of it. You, you mentioned that uh, Lyndon Johnson was very concerned about the Chinese and the Soviets. Not only they were supplying the North Vietnamese via Kong, but possibly coming in and escalating the war. It didn't look like, and correct me, please, on this if, if, I, if I see this wrong. It didn't look like Richard Nixon believed that the Chinese and the, and the Soviets would come in. That's when he you know, invaded Cambodia and went into Laos and, and mined Haiphong Harbor. Is that an accurate description or is it something else that I'm not seeing? Well, I think that the Chinese, by the time that this happens that you're referring to, they are at a point where they have suffered how many millions of casualties in that civil war, you know, the, the People's Revolution or the, whatever the name of that revolution was, where Chairman Mao went after everybody. I don't think that their military was in a position to do much of anything about that. Also, you have to remember that Nixon had a pretty good ambassador to China at that point in time by the name of George Bush. And I think Bush pretty much told them where the boat was going to dock if they did decide to come in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Bush was also had been prior to that. Bush had been the director of the CIA. So he, he literally knew where the bodies were buried. <laughs> And he was able to probably, with Nixon's permission, and here again, Nixon had an incredibly strong Secretary of State in Henry Kissinger. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm pretty certain that they had gone to the Chinese as well as to the Russians. You know, Nixon made that incredible trip to Moscow mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, went to China as well. I, I, I don't think that Nixon feared that near as much as Johnson did. Okay. Um, and, and Dave, you know, for, we see a lot of the Hollywood movies. Unfortunately, we haven't seen any for a while because, if, you know, the movies that really denigrated our troops, our, our military in Vietnam. Would you sh share with our listeners, please, what type of military we had in Vietnam, the expertise of our military in Vietnam and the overall morale of our troops in Vietnam? Because, you know, we see born on the 4th of July in the Rambo movies and the rest of them, you know, this terrible morale that, that we had with our troops in Vietnam. And 
I, I believe it's a, a great inaccuracy. So share with our listeners, please, what our military was like in Vietnam at that point in our nation's history. I think that for the most part, our military was incredibly torn as to what what they were doing. And a large part of that came from the leadership at the top. You know, you send young men into combat. You don't send them as units. You send them as replacements, individual replacements. There wasn't the cohesiveness, the esprit de corps, if you will, that a lot of them had had in, say, even Korea, especially World War II, Korea. In terms of technical ability, nobody was going to beat us. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, you know, we, we were that good. What failed us was the fact that you had, as senior commanders, you had the men who had cut their teeth, if you will, on in World War II. You know, you look at Westmoreland, for example. Westmoreland was very instrumental in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, you look at Creighton Abrams. Abrams was a young lieutenant colonel in the Battle of the Bulge. So these guys had basically grown up with the mentality and the teachings that came out of West Point that were based on the, the lessons of World War I and World War II. Well, Vietnam was not geographically set up to where you could, could do those kinds of things. You know, major tank battles, you know, all these different aspects. One lesson that our military failed to realize or failed to learn, in my opinion, was what should have been learned from World War II. Look at the bombs that we dropped on Europe in World War II, thousands and millions of tons. Mm-hmm. And yet it took men on the ground to go and occupy and not walk away from, I might add, mm-hmm. that finally brought you know, Germany to its knees. I often tell my students, even today, you know, we have, in essence, painted ourselves into a nuclear corner. You know, it's like you get a couple of kids bullying on the playground. Okay, if, you, if your final ultimate threat to your opponent is, well, you know, you cross that line, I'm going to nuke you. What do you do if the guy crosses the line? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and, and that's where we found ourselves. After 1968, after the Tet Offensive in 68 and 69, from a casualty standpoint, arts were the two worst years of the war. More Americans were killed in those two years than all the other years combined. And you drop that on top of, you know, the the riots in the streets, the Vietnam riots, I, I think back to, you know, the assassination of Martin Luther King and what happened, you know, uh, as a result of that. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated and we go through it all over again. You hit the Chicago Democratic Convention in 68. I, I remember sitting in my high school history class and just sitting there and asking my teacher, you know, what what in the name of heaven is going on here? What is happening to our country? Yeah, yeah. Because what, what you're teaching us is not what we're seeing. And, you know, there was a, a policy that unless you were in the Army or in that draft group during those years, you, you wouldn't know that this existed. But I'm, I'm telling you, it did. And it was called the lower 40% rule. Mm-hmm. And they took... You know, when you take your ASVAB test when you're first uh, inducted, if you were in the lower 40% test-wise, you were going to Vietnam, Mm -hmm. almost without a doubt. You were going to Vietnam. You throw in the racist factor. You throw in the drug use factor. uh, You throw the, I don't want to be the last guy to die in Vietnam factor. And pretty soon, it, it just, you know, kind of morphs into a, why are we here? And, you know, you stop and think about 
ever since then. And it's been, God, we're coming up on 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you stop and think, what is the one statement that we always look at when we look at going somewhere and going into combat? You don't want this to become another what? Vietnam. 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 Yeah. Oh. Um, were there good lessons that could have been learned from this? Absolutely. Were they learned? Doesn't seem so. Doesn't seem so. Uh, Dave, as we're wrapping up here, again, this is just fly so quickly. All my years of teaching, I, I always taught my kids, always view everything, try to view everything without a bias. Look at both sides. Look at all the sides. Come up. You know, you can still have a conclusion about something, but don't don't go after your bias. Go after the truth. And honestly, there's right. three there's three people that I've never been able to get to a neutral viewpoint about in, in American history. One is Lyndon Johnson. The second is Robert McNamara. And the third is Jane Fonda. Um, the holy triumvirate. The holy, the holy <laughs> untrinity. So, um, I don't, you know. So, do you, are there? Do you have any feelings that, as we're wrapping this up about the three of them is a package deal for nothing at this point? <laughs> yes, I do, and I will try to clean it up for your audience. Okay. <laughs> uh, individually and together, collectively, as those three people. I wouldn't pour cold water on their hind end if their guts were on fire. <laughs> I'm not laughing at the sadness of those three, but yeah, but your statement, how true, how true. And that's if that's pro, that could that could be a whole nother discussion. It could be should be a whole nother discussion for us, Dave. At this point, so well. I, again, I have, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was we, just going to say that those three people are ones that uh, I can't. I make no bones about it. I, I hate every one of them. Okay. And I know that as Christian people, we shouldn't hate anyone. But I see what they did to our innocent men and women mm -hmm. overseas. And for that, I, I will never be able to forgive them. And, and, and I'm say exact same feelings that I have. And again, I have not been in the military, but I know people like yourself and so many others and, and seeing the tragedy of Vietnam and what has happened there. So, well, Dave, we want to thank you for, again, for sharing the thoughts about uh, Vietnam and the Gulf of Tonkin and Lyndon Johnson and the tragedy that we have lived through and the 58,308 men's names and the eight nurses that are on that wall down in Washington. I pray yeah. that I pray that ultimately we will learn the lessons of Vietnam and never repeat them for another generation. So again, this is sobering. These things need to be said and they need to be taught. And we as Americans need to hear these things to not allow our government to ever, ever take us through any of these situations again. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for your honesty. And thank you for enlightening us with these very sobering facts and thoughts about Vietnam. Well, I appreciate it, Arch. And just as a final comment as to why I feel the way I do, what I just expressed, first time I, my students ever saw me cry was at the wall. Mm -hmm. uh, we were there on a close-up trip, and one of them came out and said, Mr. Saul, are, are you okay? And I said, I will be. But I said, these 14 names right here, uh, I grew up with them. They were my classmates, and they never had a chance to get much beyond the age of 18 or 19 years old. That's Yep. Uh, yep. And I blame Johnson and I blame McNamara and I blame Jane Fonda. 
exactly uh, exactly exactly true so listeners if you have not seen that wall in washington dc you need to get there and you need to see that and you need to see what we experienced as a, a tragic part of our history Dave, we want to thank you. This is sobering, but thank you. This needs to be told, and this needs to be taught, and this needs to be shared. So thank you for opening up yourself to these events and sobering events that we want to share with our listeners. I appreciate it, Arch. It was my pleasure. look forward to doing it again, buddy. Great. We want to have you back soon, so thank you. This is 1180 AM WFYL, Working for Your Liberty. 